Kelly Sinclair's books are recommended for readers of Kate Quinn and Judy Nunn, and that tells you a lot about the sort of stories they are. Dual timeline family stories unravelling long-buried secrets. Her latest book, The Codebreakers, takes that scenario one step further, dealing with national as well as personal secrets, telling the story of the cipher-breaking Australian women who staffed Central Bureau Intelligence, the equivalent of Bletchley Park in London. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Ellie talks about her passion for stories about strong women defying society's expectations and her exciting new film projects with an LA-based collaborator. We've got three ebook copies of The Codebreakers to give away to three lucky readers in our Loving You romance promo. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on our Facebook binge reading page. And don't forget to check out Ellie's answers to our five quickfire questions on our Patreon exclusive content on the Binge Reading on Patreon page. As regular listeners will know, we very recently launched Binge Reading on Patreon. For those of you who like to hear exclusive fun content about our authors and the show for a small contribution to costs, as little as a cup of coffee a month. Your contribution to Patreon helps defray my costs in hosting and producing the show, but the time I devote to researching and recording the podcast is still all free. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading and join in the behind the scenes fun but now here's Ellie hello there Ellie and welcome to the show it's great to have you with us hi Jenny thank you so much for having me along look the code breakers which is your latest novel is like an Australian version of the Bletchley Park story because it's the story of the work of the women who worked in the so-called Central Bureau in Australia during the Second World War. Now, I'd never even realised that this bureau existed. How did you come across the story? I had written a book called Burning Fields, which came out in 2018, and my main character, I had her working for the Australian Women's Army Service in Brisbane, and I didn't really touch much on that because it, the story was actually set post-war. But I really liked the idea of exploring what it was like for women in working for the war effort in Australia. So I jumped on the old Google and I just put in women, World War II, Australian Women's Army Service, Australia, and this very tiny article popped up about Central Bureau and it mentioned that it was Australia's elite signals intelligence organisation and had been kept a secret for decades. And I went, okay, I've never heard of this. So the researcher in me just went crazy and it took me quite a while to uncover the information. But as soon as I, I discovered this story, I just, there was no way I was letting go. <laughs> No, that's absolutely right. And the researching of it, though, must have been pretty difficult because we're coming to the point where there 
although there could be written memoirs, most of the women involved would now have passed on, wouldn't mm. they? Yeah, um, there are still a few women and men. They're all in their mid to late 90s. Yes. Um, Got to say, they're all sharp as tacks. It's amazing, <laughs> which is really, uh, really fantastic because I was actually able to ask them a lot of questions that you don't get in history books, you know, like, you know, yes. what, what was it like to keep a secret and, you know, how, how did your day look, you know, when you woke up in the morning and, and just little tiny things, like even th- simple things like the women used to sing the latest pop songs, hit songs, you know, in the truck as they were going from the army barracks to uh, the headquarters of Central Bureau and they would do that kind of as a bit of a stress relief. Those are things that you don't find in the history books. So that's why I was so, so lucky to actually be able to talk with these amazing people and hear their stories and hear their personal you know, thoughts and experiences. That is fantastic. Actually, I saw a news item just in the last couple of weeks, which you might have picked up on. One of the Bletchley Park women, I think now about 98, was given an honour by the French government. Did you see yes, that? Yes, I did see that. Yeah. Yes. And she was as sharp as a tack, it seemed, on TV. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah they're amazing. Yeah. And I guess she would see that it's just she is representative of the whole group because none of them could claim that they individually had done this. It was a total team effort, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And and I think that's one of the, the things I really wanted to touch on in the Code Breakers was the strength of these friendships mm. between the women because obviously the secret, keeping their work secret, bound them together. But they also, yes, because they worked as a team, they really kind of, they were a very, very tight unit. Mm. They lived with each other, worked with each other. Yeah, so it's definitely, I think, friendship and the strength of these women working together had, you know, played a really big role in their lives and I wanted that to come across in the co-breakers as well. Now, you mentioned the stress of keeping the secret. And I did share with you before we got going, my my mother worked at Bletchley Park during the Second World War and she met my father who was a Kiwi airman. And I knew that she had to keep a, a secret because she was very, very strong on that even when I was a kid, she would never talk about it. And if, if you ever asked her questions, she would bring up the thing about the 50-year Secrets Act. Mm-hmm. But it had never occurred to me, I mean, I knew that she wouldn't be able to discuss her work with my father, but I thought that she would be able to sort of hint that she was involved in some sort of secret mission. But really, they weren't even allowed to divulge that much, were they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So a lot of, I know a lot of the women just led their family and friends to believe that they were, you know, I guess paper pushers and all working as cleaners, you know, for the army because that was just a lot easier than than saying, oh, I'm doing top secret work, I can't tell you. Yeah. Yeah, because it just it just caused too many complications and, yes, of course, then it run, ran the risk then of, you know, things spilling out. So, yeah, it was definitely a lot easier, I think, for them to pretend that they were, you know, just doing regular admin jobs. Yes, I think my mother probably said she was a secretary. Yeah. But, and they weren't even allowed to divulge it after the war, or some of them didn't, because they took that promise of secrecy extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. Did that create problems in later life with their relationships, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So actually, when I set out to write about the co-breakers, I had experienced 
my expectations were it was going to be centred around World War II and what happened. But then as I got to know the men and the women um, and talking to them about their stories, I realised that there was a much bigger story than just their work at Central Bureau because their work, even though they weren't doing it, kind of carried on for, for the next, you know, five, six decades because of the secret that they had to keep. And it was interesting learning about how people dealt with that. So some, you know, some people were able to just sweep it under the carpet and just get on with their lives. Other people felt like it drove a wedge between their family and friends because they could never 100% give themselves, you know, to their loved ones. They always felt there was a piece of them that they had to hide. You know, uh, and, you know, one lady I spoke to, she took off overseas. She she went to work in England for about six years because she just couldn't deal having to, I guess, fake it, you know, with, with her family mm. and friends. And for her, it was easier just to, you know, head off overseas <laughs> for a while. So, yeah, everyone dealt with it very differently. And often, the, I mean, the next generation down, like my generation in terms of my mother, because of that 50-year thing, it was really only the grandchildren who started to be able to understand what their grandparents might have done, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it, it's. I've also spoken to a lot of family members as well of codebreakers who, you know, we most, you know, ones we have with us and ones who have passed on. And it's really interesting hearing their stories um, about their grandparents' And discovering what they did, you know, you know, you know, good old, you know, Grandma Maud, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they discovered that Grandma Maud was, you know, a co-breaker <laughs> in <laughs> Brisbane. And <laughs> but she was the best crocheter and made the great, you know, the great sponge cakes, you know, like they yes. taking them in such a different light. And I think yes. I think it's really fantastic that younger generations get a chance to see older people in a new light and, and yes. you know, realise they're not just these old people. Like, there are these people who've lived these really amazing, fulfilled lives and have fantastic wisdom to impart as well. So it's, it's yes. really nice to get that bond, I think, between the different yes. generations for sure. Yeah. Look, you mentioned the Brisbane line too in the story and I had never, I mean, obviously I don't know a lot about Australian history, but I'd never heard of the Brisbane line, that the government in Australia during that war did actually have the secret line uh, called the Brisbane line, which they agreed they would not bother to defend above that line if the Japanese invaded. They would only defend south of that line. Now, is that the right interpretation? Yeah, yeah it, it is. Um, and that line actually ran all across Australia into through the Northern Territory and into WA. Um, but, the, yeah, they called it the Brisbane Line. I hadn't heard of it either, to be honest, and I spent a lot of time in Queensland. I'm a Victorian. And it was, it was really interesting to learn about it and then to talk to people about it. And, you know, people really felt that threat. Like the people of Brisbane and, and, and north, further north, like they really lived with that reality, even though the government turned around and said, oh, you know, it'd only be under extreme circumstances. Just the fact that it was even discussed mm. was a big enough threat and, and people lived with that, you know, realising that they, they could be sacrificed, you know, yeah. sh should should the worst come to worst. So mm. it was a pretty hard thing for a lot of people to, well, thankfully it never happened, but 
Yeah. When did that become public? That's a very good question. Probably not during the war itself, do you think? Oh, no, I believe it was public during during the war. Yep, yeah. it was during the war. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would be an amazing thing to live with, to know that you were likely to be, well, if it happened, you mm. could be sacrificed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what do you think the biggest contribution was that the Australian cipher intelligence units made or... Do we still not know to this day? Has it been kept secret? How much of it do we know now? We know enough to know that they helped shorten the war in the Pacific by two years. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is mm. absolutely amazing. And one of the reasons that they did have to sign the Official Secrets Act is a lot of the intelligence that they gathered and also, I guess, the systems that they used to gather the intelligence was actually used for quite a long time after World War II finished. Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the, I think the, there's still a lot of elements that we don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know, but maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe someone else's. But, yeah, there's there's still quite a bit that it, it's not quite out there yet. Yeah, yeah. Now, these were the unsung heroes of World War Two, and your website says that you like writing stories about strong women defying society's expectations and you've you've done eight books this is your most recent but you've got a, a really good backlist there and they all deal with this issue of strong women and society's expectations in different ways don't they 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 do it's i, I think most writers we find a particular theme that we're really drawn to mm. and mine is definitely you know women yeah you know, i guess ahead of their time, <laughs> you know. Case in point would be Ellie, um, the main character in The Code Breakers. You know, she she wants to go on and become a pilot after the war, like a commercial pilot. Of course, that was yes. not done, but, you know, Ellie's not the kind of person to say, well, why can't that change? Yeah, and so all my heroines are very similar. Like they really, they look at the world quite differently to those in their era. And, you know, they, and they question, they question, you know, why things are. And of course, their questions can sometimes, you know, put them in hot water, which is great <laughs> for a writer. It helps, it really helps move the story along. So, <laughs> now I, su- I suspect that this may be a little bit of Ellie coming in there as well, because you yourself have led a very adventurous life. You seem to be the sort of person who asks not, why can't I do this or I can do this? You've done mountain climbing and lots of travel. I just wonder how you've managed to fit Mm. in the writing and that side of your life, the adventurous side. How did they fit together? Was that like a jigsaw puzzle of some sort? Uh, yeah, um, actually, I've got a lot of the adventuring in before I, I started writing fiction. It was actually, but it was actually my, I guess, my adventures that led me down to the world um, of fiction. So I had, I think I recent, I had recently moved back from South America, and a radio journalist was interviewing me about my work as a mountaineer. And afterwards, he said to me, "Guys, have you ever thought about, you know, writing fiction?" I said, "Oh, no, not really. You know, I." I, I had heaps of travel diaries so I always wrote but he planted that seed and then one of the big travel uh, agencies in Australia they have like a, a yearly magazine and they were running a short story competition you know 500 words I thought oh, I'll give that a shot and I finaled it got published and I saw my name in print and then that was kind of the end of me I was like okay, I like this <laughs> 
So I rolled in a creative writing course and really haven't looked back. So, but yeah, I mean, certainly my first three books, you know, they're set in Argentina, Spain and France. So they're my, I call them my travel fiction books, um, probably fairly heavily influenced by by my love of travel and uh, learning about other cultures for sure. Yeah. And then you, after those first three, you've switched to more Australian-based fiction. So why did you make that switch away from the international back to the Aussie-based? I think I just wanted to try something new mm-hmm. and set myself a bit of a challenge to see if I could write an Australian-based book. That one the first one there was Burning Fields, but then half of it takes place in wartime Italy, so I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, all my books do have an element because a lot of my books are dual timeline, so usually at least one of them has a is set overseas. All the stories have a really strong sort of multicultural flavour, so I have, you know, different characters from different backgrounds just to, you know, make things interesting. Yeah, so The Burning Fields is a Romeo and Juliet story set in the Queensland sugar cane fields in the late 1940s. Mm. But then the most, the one before this, The Code Breakers, was the cinema at Starlight Creek. And that is a dual timeline story that links a small Queensland country town with. Hollywood. And I know you also have been working in the film industry mm-hmm. yourself. So tell us a bit about how that came about. Yeah. Oh, look, I've always been, I, oh, I love the Hollywood classics. I grew up on, on them and just, you know, lots of lovely family memories with my mum and dad and my grandma, just, you know, watching the old movies when I was 10 years old. So I've always been a fan of of movies, especially Hollywood movies, like old Hollywood. So as part of my research, because my main character in the Queensland story works as a location assistant on a TV series. So luckily, um, a friend of mine, her uncle was working on a big Australian production and he was happy for me to come along and spend some time on set and get to talk to all the different people, learn about their roles and see all how it all fit together and get that real great atmosphere of of what it's like to be on a film set because there is something quite electric about it, which I, I love. And I think most writers, you know, have that that idea, oh, you know, I'd love to see one of my books, you know, into a movie or a TV series. But then after being on set, I was just like, you know what, I really do want to spread my wings and I really am interested in learning about the film industry. So for the last little while I've been working with a producer in L.A., on uh, three book-to-film projects and I'm also now doing a documentary on the Australian Code Breakers, but there are, of course, a lot of Kiwi Code Breakers as well in Brisbane with Central Bureau. And, yeah, so I've got quite a few projects on the go at the moment and writing in between as well as, you know, hanging out the washing and (laughs) cooking dinner. (laughs) (laughs) How fantastic. So... Those three books that you've got on the go, are they all Australian books of some sort or other? One of them is, well, one of them is The Co-Breakers. So we're currently looking for a production partner in Australia. And the other two are ideas that I've developed. One's American-centric, one is definitely Australian-centric. And I haven't written those books yet, but we're sort of working on the book and the film together. So, which is really interesting, actually, because you know, 
with books, I'm used to sort of, you know, just working out the idea myself, but to have input from someone else, you know, who's really great at visual stuff, it's been such a great process. So I'm really, I'm really enjoying the whole collaborating. It's great. Yeah. And look, as if, as if that isn't enough, you also organise writers retreats, don't you? Are you still doing that? Well, <laughs> pre-COVID we were. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. COVID stuffed up that kind oh, of thing, hasn't it? I yeah. know. So look, we did. We were running Riders at Sea with a really close writing friend of mine, T.M. Clark. She does fabulous African thrillers. So yes, we were running Riders retreats on a cruise ship um, out to the South Pacific, and it was a mixture of workshops and riding sprints, and then days on the beach. And it was just such a, a great way for people to combine holiday and their passion for writing and so we, we ran a few of those obviously that's ground to a halt yeah but we're kind we're hoping that maybe towards the end of next year we we might be able to uh, do those again and if we can't take them at sea then we're definitely looking at somewhere um, up in North Queensland and running it with an ocean view but not necessarily on the sea on a cruise ship but um, as soon Gosh, as we it's can, a fabulous idea a cruise ship I mean I must I didn't quite pick that up from your website it, it sounds really enticing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's great. And my family don't believe it's work, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's a perennial question that I like to ask everybody that I talk to, and it's amazing the range of answers that I get. But is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret of your success? Hmm. Honestly, I, I think I think it's just persistence. Just yeah, believing in your story and and just and following it through. And you know, there are days when you know you do doubt yourself and you do doubt your stories. But I think just persisting and just holding on to that vision of where you want that story to go. And I think persistence is definitely, I mean, for any writer, is definitely something that we need for sure. Yes. Yes. Turning to Ali as reader, you, this is the joys of binge reading. We like to make some recommendations for people of books they might like to enjoy following up on. You probably have been a voracious reader. Most writers have been. Tell us a little bit about your reading tastes and what you're particularly liking to read at the moment. Oh, gosh, I'm quite an eclectic reader. I'm actually a really big fan of writers from India and also South America. Isabel Allende, I absolutely adore her books. And Vikram Seth, The Suitable Boy, was was one of my, my, I think I read it, when did it come out? Probably about 92. And it sat at number one on my list and has yet to be knocked off. <laughs> so any writers out there, I challenge you to knock that book off the list, top of the list. <laughs> but I'm a really big fan of Belinda Alexandra. She often, they're usually dual timeline stories and she does such a, a great array of characters and lots of different locations as well. And yeah, she, she's just got Oh, fabulous books and they're very very easy like you just want to like read one after the other <laughs> great for binge reading yeah they're really really fantastic books as well marvelous yeah look circling round and looking back down the little tunnel of time with your writing career at this stage if you were doing it all over again is there anything that you would change mm. I probably wouldn't write those first three manuscripts will never see the light of day <laughs> 
But no, I needed to do those. I needed to do those ones just to, you know, learn the craft and, you know, learn the art of editing and uh, character and those sorts of things. So, no, they were absolutely necessary. I needed to do those. Um, I think I would connect with other writers a lot earlier in my career. I wasn't aware of any organisations like RWA or RW New Zealand or even the state writing organisations. So definitely I would have connected with other writers a lot earlier, I think. So just clarifying that, you had three manuscripts mm. that are sitting in a bottom drawer somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and quite an array. Like one's like magical realism, another one's pretty much autobiographical, and the other one, I don't know what I was doing with that one. But that's okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I was going to ask you in connection with those workshops Mm. that you held, what you saw as being the biggest hurdle for writers starting out. And it's probably relevant if you had to do three manuscripts before you started to find your voice. And and maybe, I mean, there is a theory, isn't there, that we have to write, I think it was 100,000 words before we find Mm. our voice. That's, That's probably not quite three manuscripts. But what is the biggest hurdle that you see beginner writers coming across? I think, and look, I was very guilty of this or not. I, I think having having the expectation that you write a book and then you find a publisher and that's it. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. I think one of the things is realising that this is a journey, that everybody's journey is different. And yes, sometimes people do sell their first manuscript to a publisher and it becomes a massive hit but that's not that common. So I think being prepared for a journey that's going to have, you know, a few twists and turns, a couple of dead ends here and there, I think knowing that, knowing what you're getting into is great because then I think it kind of helps then with managing expectations as well. Because, I mean, look, honestly, when I opened my first Word document, I thought, oh, you just write a book and you send it to the publisher and yay. (laughs) (laughs) I quickly learned that's not the case yeah but yeah so I think just managing expectations and understanding you know the journey without being put off either like I mean and I think that's the thing is sometimes writers just starting out think oh my gosh you know like it, it just sounds like it's so hard but along the way you meet people and like other writers and you know you meet other or your authors who might have six hits and then you might have meet another author who's just starting out on their first manuscript as well. So it's the people that you meet along the way is what makes that journey so very special. And then when you do have your breakthrough, you can really celebrate it because, one, you've worked really hard to get there and, two, you've got a lovely group of people who get get it, like they get how special, you know, your celebration is. Yeah. So talking about working with other writers and getting to know other writers how did your collaboration with TM start with your writing workshops and is there ever any possibility in the future you might write a collaborative novel we finally you know we have talked about it but we write so such different <laughs> different genres I don't know you never say never but yeah so Tina and I met through a mutual friend I had just signed with my agent and 
just got my first publishing deal and Tina was working um, for the same publisher. So our mutual friend introduced us and that was back in 2013 and I don't think we've finished chatting since. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, we became very firm friends quickly. (laughs) And also script writing is very different from novel writing, isn't it, in the sense that it is more of a collaborative process. Are you actually attempting to write the scripts for these movies as well as develop them? Yes, yes, and they are, yeah, very different beasts. So I've sort of gone back to school and learning to write scripts. There are some elements that are the same in terms of pacing and characters and character arcs and themes and all those things that, you know, we work with when we're dealing with books but yes writing a script is is quite different because I guess you're telling (laughs) you know you're telling the story as opposed to showing the story when when you're in you know writing fiction for books so Mm -hmm. yeah it's um been quite the learning curve but I have found that it has also really improved my fiction as well it's I think they do complement each other but they need to be treated as separate separate animals as well. Yes, although I think that fiction writing, particularly in the mass market area, Mm. has been very much influenced by TV over the last few years and some of those breakout hits that are on the content channels like Netflix and so forth, that they really give you a few ideas for how to help move your fiction along, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, quite often I'll be, you know, sitting on the couch watching a movie or a TV series or something and my husband will walk past and he'll go, oh, studying uh, character development, are we? (laughs) (laughs) We're watching how to plot a pivot. That's it. (laughs) So, Ellie, looking ahead for the next 12 months, uh, tell us what you're really focusing on and what you hope to achieve in the next 12 months. You've got so many irons in the fire, but where are your priorities for the next 12 months? Write the next book for my publisher. That's a good one. Good start. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, get that one done. And, yeah, uh, get our documentary uh, about the co-breakers, get that finished, and also... Hopefully get the co-breakers to the point where it's greenlit to to be developed into a, a drama. So and but I'm also working on what I call as my passion project, which is um, a Cold War story, which I'm absolutely loving. It's it's a story that's been kicking around in my head for about the last eight years. And I was kind of just waiting until I, I guess I felt ready because it's it's a pretty big project, this one. And, uh, yeah, I now feel I'm, I'm at that point where I'm, okay, I can tackle this. Fantastic. And the next book that you're doing for your publisher, is that in a similar vein to The Codebreaker? No, it's quite different, actually. Um, so it's, it is, well, this one's, I've gone back to my dual timelines because I can't resist them. So <laughs> we're going back to 1888 in Paris. And present day rural Victoria. So yes, so two two very different timelines and places. But yes, of course there'll be something tying them together. That's fantastic. Now, do you enjoy hearing from your readers, and and how can they connect with you online? I love hearing from readers. Oh yeah, it's just that's one. That's one of the reasons I do what I do because I I love to hear from readers and their thoughts and you know how they feel about the characters and those sorts of things so um I have my website which is 
www.alisinclair.com. Um, there's a contact form there. Otherwise, I also have an Ali Sinclair Facebook page as well. I think it's under Ali Sinclair Author. I'm also on Instagram as well. I am on Twitter, but I rarely check it, so you might not find me there. Fantastic. And all those links will be on the uh, website when the show is published. We give a total transcript of our conversation there, which will be there forevermore, which is really nice. So that what happens is that people continue downloading these episodes for ages after they're first published, which I find really exciting. That's when you great. look back on the figures, they're like evergreen content that sit there, which is really nice. Oh, that is lovely. And how long have you mm. been doing this for? Nearly four years. Yes, we're coming up to 200th episode in December. Wow. Yeah. On you. Well, thank you for supporting other authors. Like that is just because I, I know what you do. It's a lot of work. So thank you. Well, that's lovely. Actually, I mean, when I started out, I didn't quite see it, frame it that way. But it definitely is a resource for everybody that that's you know takes part. It really is. So, mm. yes, I'm quite proud of it as we've gone you on. You should When be. I started out, I wanted to, I wanted to reach 50 episodes. I saw a very well-known writer said she wouldn't go on any podcast that didn't have a minimum of 50 episodes. And I thought, oh, that's the first goal. Oh, <laughs> and now look at you. Can't stop you. <laughs> so that's great. Oh, that's Ali, thanks so much. It's been great talking. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.